Magnus Podcast, Episode 8, Aristotle's Categories and You. Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. With your help, we are dedicated to promoting and expanding access to education that is truly great. And I've got to say here at the onset, thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your downloads, for your comments, for your subscription to this podcast. In the infant stages of our production here, we've been really impressed. Our team has been uh, surprised and edified by the amount of traction that this little podcast has been getting. So we'll keep it up and you keep it up. Thank you so much for listening and sharing this podcast. It really does mean a lot. And something of a PSA here, if you're listening close to the date of the production of this particular episode, of course, everything we do is taped with the intention of being evergreen. That is, you can listen to it uh, at any time from now until the end of time and hopefully benefit from it. But if you're listening close to now, whatever now might be for you, uh, we are preparing something big at magnusinstitute.org on November 15th. By November 15th, that's the feast of our great patron, St. Albert. And we're going to be unveiling a lot of great offerings at magnusinstitute.org. So please keep an eye on the calendar. And thank you for being a part of what we are undertaking to do. It's, it's no small feat. That is, we want to liberate the liberal arts. It needs doing, and it can be done with your help. So thank you so much for your support thus far. MagnusInstitute.org on November 15th. In today's episode, we're bringing you a continuation of our series of discussions held at beautiful Thomas Aquinas College, one of the greatest great book schools in all the land, located in Santa Paula, California, we sat down with Dr. Joseph Hatrip, who's a tutor at TAC. He's got a BA from Thomas Aquinas College himself, a master's and a doctorate from University of St. Thomas in Houston. And he's unpacking one of the most important foundational texts in the Western canon of great books, that is Aristotle's Categories. And this is a text that can be daunting at first to anybody, difficult to make sense of. And Dr. Hatrip does a splendid job of providing not only lucid starting points, but a sort of rundown of each of the 10 categories and giving examples, like everyday examples that anybody can understand of how these categories are applicable and really uh, foundational in all subsequent thought and the history of thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion. It was, it was really great to sit down with Dr. Hatrip. He's, he's a gentleman. He's a scholar. I don't say that lightly. Uh, really, really impressive guy. And so we're very grateful to have had the chance. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here we go. Dr. Joseph Hatrip on Aristotle's categories. Aristotle as a corpus, where would you say is the best place to start? Well, I would start with the categories, in fact. Whoa. I, think it's, I think it's the very beginning. Wow. It, and chronologically, was this the first uh, of his recorded works that we have that he wrote? I don't know. Uh, I, I can't make the judgment that it was the first book that he wrote. I am pretty confident that it is among the first books that he would have had a student read. Um, uh, 
One reason I say that is that Aristotle's works, in my experience, are very carefully cross-referenced by himself. He will refer to different texts uh, as he's going through a particular work. And in my experience, he's very careful about what he's doing. So if he refers to another book, more often than not, it's because he expects you to have read it already. There are a few places where he'll refer to a work that he doesn't expect you to have read yet, but then he puts that in the future tense. <laughs> he says, this is something that we'll do later. Um, in the categories, you don't have that kind of cross-referencing. It's very, it's very fundamental, uh, and I think it's pretty clear that by the time you're reading other books, he expects you to have that one under your belt. Uh, most people who have read, read Aristotle, which is probably very few people, um, might be familiar with the Nicomachean Ethics, Yes, and that's certainly I would say his most accessible work. The categories, probably not so much. Why do you think that the cat the categories are sort of understudied or underremarked? Probably because um, uh, when you're dealing with the categories, you're dealing with, in fact, a very difficult text. Um, <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of speculation about why Aristotle wrote in the style that he did. So uh, one opinion that's that's very popular is that um, many of his works were written as if they were lecture notes and not necessarily intended for publication. Um, I tend to be cautious about that view just because his, his books are so well ordered. There's nothing messy about them. So certainly if they, if they have that character, um, it's not because he was just reminding himself about what he was going to say. These books are very carefully organized. So, so it may be that the categories wasn't um, as finished a work as regards publication as the Nicomachean Ethics was. That, that's possible. Um, at the same time, I think it's... Well, let me make another comment about that. I think one reason why it's another reason why it's a little inaccessible is because there are aspects of it that um, appeal to higher sciences. <laughs> when you're dealing with the Nicomachean Ethics, you're talking about moral knowledge, and consequently, uh, there are just a lot of things in there that come from a more accessible basic human experience. Right. It seems to me, when you're dealing with the categories, I think you're dealing with a work of logic. But it's a work of logic that is meant not only to get you started as a logician, but also to prepare you for certain things that you're going to encounter as a metaphysician. Hmm. And so as a consequence, there's some more difficult concepts in there. <laughs> so, yeah. And, so if somebody asks me, okay, I want to start reading the ethics. What's it about? I'd say, okay, well, it's about habit and virtue and happiness and friendship and ultimately contemplation absolutely and that sounds interesting let's dig into it and somebody says i want to read the categories what's it about and uh what do we say other than it's about the categories i think the fundamental answer to that question is that it's about definition mm. uh, so one of the things that the logician is going to have to have mastered uh, by the time that he's uh, thoroughly engaged in logic is the art of defining um and that's really what the categories is all about, is, is making definitions. So insofar as uh, that's one of the works of logic, I'd say that's what the categories is about. So uh, when colloquially, when we speak of categories, we think of sort of mental arrangements of different kinds of things. Uh, to what extent is that 
the same uh, understanding of the word with Aristotle's categories. I think that's very. I think that's very much what he has in mind. I might add to that, um, uh, not just uh, mental groupings, but but groupings that involve naming. So we're involving. So, so we're talking about uh, human thought, human ideas, but also names that we give to things. Um, and so, uh, uh, insofar as the categories is about defining things, you're going to be dealing with concepts that organize things, but also names that organize things. Uh, how many categories are there? So Aristotle will say that there are 10. Okay, can you rattle them off? I think I probably could. Let's try it. <laughs> so the first is substance, which uh -huh. is the most famous one. Uh, quantity, quality, and relation. Uh, those first four are, I think, the most important for Aristotle. The others uh, tend to have some reference to them. Then we have the categories of where and when, sometimes called place and time, although I think there are some distinctions to make there. Uh, position, uh, what Aristotle calls habit or having, which literally has to do with things like clothing. And then action and passion. Habit in the monastic sense. Habit in the monastic sense, that's okay. right. Yeah, the, that word would come from this category. That's right. And then action and passion, is that one category? That's two. That's two yeah, distinct categories. So those categories. are the, the last two, yes. Okay. And does everything that, everything that we can speak of uh, is always existing and operating according to all ten categories? Or are some of them in play at certain times or states of being and others not. I think that Aristotle wants to say finally that um, now this is this is uh, I think this is something that you see when you get more into his metaphysical works you see this clearly then <laughs> um, it's difficult to see this clearly in the in the categories itself but it, but I think that this is important in answering that question ultimately he thinks that there are 10 kinds of beings out there in the world and these names, these ten names, are trying to signify those ten kinds of being. They are distinct from each other. Um, so when I say that I'm sitting, for example, um, I'm attributing a position to myself, that position is a different thing from the place that I'm occupying. That is, you are a sitting being, and that would be distinct from... In office. From being, being in the office or in the chair. In the that's, that's right. So there are two different, I think Aristotle would, would go so far as to say something like this. There are two distinct natures there mm -hmm. that those names are trying to signify, both of which are present in me, but they're distinct from each other. And the unis that would not change would be, would fall under something like substance. Is that right? So the Joseph Hattrip or the manness. Even. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so a fundamental distinction that Aristotle wants to make there is going to be between substance, which is the primary category, and the other nine. Um, and he he says pretty clearly there that that first category, substance, is that in which all of the others exist. It's uh, he'll refer to it. Um, uh, he'll refer to it precisely as the subject of the other nine. How is this different? Because this seems foreign to the modern ear, almost unintelligibly so. How is this notion of being different, like radically different even, from the way moderns think about being or beings? I think that, um, 
I think that there there are a couple things there. Um, first, when we talk about beings nowadays, um, I think we tend to talk about uh, anything that we could give a name to as a kind of being. Um, what Aristotle really wants us to see is that uh, there are beings and there are beings. And, and this is literally the way he's going to put it in the categories. There's an order of priority. Um, so some beings exist before other ones do. And, there, um, and, and really there are two distinct orders here. There's the order in existence itself. Some beings have to exist before others are able to exist. And so those, those later beings are accounted for by the earlier ones. In, in but, other words, so... Uh Joseph Hattrip sitting in office could not exist before Joseph Hattrip the substance. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. And this is going to be true in the in the names and the concepts too. Um, so, so in in order to see the kind of thing that Aristotle is talking about, you really have to have have gained some insight into that order. And this this is in fact a difficult thing to do. <laughs> so to understand. Um, so to understand what a substance is, the kind of thing that Aristotle is calling a substance, um, and to see that it's really primary takes some, uh, takes some work. I think that one thing that makes this difficult for a modern audience is that, in fact, <laughs> um, it's a feature of our mental makeup nowadays that when we, when we try to achieve a scientific understanding of the world, when when we're doing science, we tend to think of it from a mathematical point of view. Um, and so the sorts of things that we want to resolve our knowledge to uh, tend to be uh, either num numbers <laughs> or uh, symbols of various kinds. Um, what Aristotle is really challenging us to do is to see that there is a being that is prior to any... Uh, any mathematical description of things. I think this is one reason why it's a challenge. Mm. We, we want to understand things nowadays so much through mathematics. That this, why do you think that is? I think it's because mathematics is so precise. That is, we can, we can exhaust our knowledge mathematically. We can, we, can, be, we can be absolutely certain. We can know things absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kind of knowledge that we're talking about that resolves itself to substance as a principle, it's not that it's less certain. But it's harder in many ways for us to gain certitude about it. Um, I, I think I think this is a this is in fact a challenge for the modern mind. Um, so uh, one thing that Aristotle will insist upon, and I think as you as you grow in awareness of the kind of the kind of principle that Aristotle thinks substance is, <laughs> um, as you grow in awareness of that, one of the things that you recognize is that the various sciences. Um, really have to change their methods they they have to they have to approach the fundamental ideas that they're depending on uh from different approaches so if you so if you get to a point culturally <laughs> where you're thinking that uh the only way in which i can gain certitude about things is through a mathematical argument then this idea of substance is going to start to slip away from you. It's, it's going to become hidden. Because substance is not... Uh, because it's prior to any mathematical description of things. Which means we can't uh, exhaustively know really any substance, right? It at least means that, it, it at least means that we have to see uh, something 
that's that's more basic even than our mathematical description and it's something that uh, because it's more basic than a mathematical description th- this might be uh, another way of, of saying what um, uh, what you were just suggesting it's going to be something that you're going to see more with the reason more with the intellect than with the senses or the imagination hmm. uh, i think this is this is one experience that you have reading a book like the categories is that uh, you get the idea pretty quick. The sorts of things Aristotle's talking about here aren't the sorts of things you can draw a picture of. <laughs> That's right, and and that makes them uh, that makes the concepts challenging. Insofar as you're you're separating yourself uh, uh, to a certain degree from things which are immediately sensible, it's not as if you're not talking about sensible things, but the description that you're trying to give of them is really primarily intellectual. And so it's not, it's not the kind of thing that you can draw a picture of, make a diagram of. <laughs> um, it's not quantitative. So you can't, you can't measure it with numbers. Um, and that makes it a challenging concept. Hmm. Why are there only 10? So is the list exhaustive? I think, I think it is. Uh, cert- certainly Aristotle intends it to be. Um, um, I think we're looking at something like this. So when you're talking about substance, that's the primary concept. In a certain way, you could say substance is being. <laughs> is his word there ousias? Or? Ousia, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so, um, so the Greek word ousia is taken from the Greek participle ousa, which means being. Uh-huh. Um, the word ousia <laughs> is an abstract uh, noun taken from that participle. So if you were to translate it literally into English, you'd get something like beingness, mm. beinghood, <laughs> mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, that makes it somewhat different from the Latin noun substantia, uh, which is commonly used to signify the same thing. But in substantia, you're, you're, the etymology is standing underneath. So... Um, what so, about essentia or uh, essence, right? Essentia would be the Latin version of usia. So sometimes the Latin, sometimes the Latin authors will translate the Greek word usia as essentia. That oh. happens in Boethius, for example. Okay. Yeah. So um, so Aristotle's thinking about substance as um, primary being. If you're going to ask what is the sort of thing that exists. Uh, it would be a universal answer to that to say substances. Um, but, but then he's going to start to say something like this. When you're de- at the very least, when you're dealing with physical substances, bodily substances, um, you're going to start to see that within those substances, there are features through which the mind attempts to grasp it in different ways. Some of those features are... Uh, involved in the intrinsic makeup of the thing. Others of them are more external, more extrinsic. And I think that that Aristotle intends the categories to be ordered along those lines. So you can first say, well, there are beings out there. Those are the substances. There are men and dogs and horses and trees and things of this sort. Um, uh, but then within those things, you start to notice that there uh, that. I that I want to ask certain questions about those things that to some degree go beyond the substance. So he'll say, I could ask how many there are or how much there is. 
Um, that's a different kind of question than just asking, what is that thing? <laughs> um, so if I ask, what is that thing? And I answer that question with horse or dog, that's a substantial question. I'm just asking what that thing is. If I ask how many are there or how much of it is there, that's a different kind of question. And that's indicating a different category. That's what, what Aristotle is going to call the category of quantity. I can also ask, of what kind is that? Of what sort is it? <laughs> um, he's going to associate that kind of question with what he calls quality. Um, and, uh, and so now you've got three categories. But again, as, as we were indicating earlier, quantity and quality are coming after the substance. I'm presupposing that there's a dog or sure. a horse there before I can ask questions like how many are there so if somebody what sort is it? points to let's say me this thing and says what is what is that thing asking uh, of substance what would what would the answer be is it, is it that is that is man that is John Johnson a man I think is what that yeah, substance the, that would be a substantial yeah and why is John, why is John Johnsonness not its own substantial predicate. This goes back to the idea of definition. Um, so, so what Aristotle thinks a category is, <laughs> um, is something that would provide you with a definition of that thing. Um, um, so, uh, so there are a couple of ideas that, that go into that, I think. Um, first, whenever I'm defining something, I'm trying to get at its nature or essence. Um, uh, Aristotle will say, and, and, and consequently, um, I'm trying to say something that could be said of anything with the same nature. So, so right away, when you're dealing with definition, there's uh, there's an appeal to universality uh, that's going on there. And I think that when you start to when you start to appreciate the role that definition has in scientific discourse, you start to appreciate why that universality is. Is important. So substance here is 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 man that is his rational animal. That would be an example of a definition. Uh, yeah, the definition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I say man, I'm giving what Aristotle would call the species of the thing. Is species and substance are these interchangeable? Almost. So so one distinction that um, that Aristotle is going to make when he's thinking about substances, he's going to say there are individual substances, like John Johnson. Mm-hmm. Joe Hatcher. It's one of my favorite substances. That's right. So. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are also what he calls secondary substances, and those are universals. And he's going to give those the names species and genus. Um, so I can I can give a proper name to the thing. Uh, when I give a proper name, I'm not defining it yet. I'm distinguishing it from from other individuals, but I'm not saying what it is. And that's the question that. A definition is trying to answer. The species or the genus are delivered for the sake of answering that question. So, so Aristotle will commonly say something like this: um, "I want to know what this man is. <laughs> I, I have an individual man, uh, Socrates, for example. I want to know what he is. Uh, to answer that question, I could say man. I could say animal. I could say living thing. When I say man, I'm giving the species." When I say animal, I'm giving the genus. Both of those names are meant to answer the question, what is it? 
And there's going to be corresponding to both of those names what Aristotle will call properly a definition. Why aren't there different categories in Aristotle's list of categories for species and genus? Why would those, those so those would both fall under right, right. substance? Yeah, because the categories are uh, conceived of, as, as we were uh, suggesting earlier, uh, the categories are conceived of either as mental associations, I prefer to say names, um, not that that, not that that, um, not that that doesn't involve a mental association, but I think that the name is the, is the, the concept that Aristotle is most directly dealing with in the, in the categories. What the categories are, are, uh, the 10 most universal names that I could give to any kind of being. Hmm. So in this case, if I'm talking about John Johnson or Joe Hattrop or Socrates, um, if I'm asking the question about that thing, what is it which is going to involve uh, substance? Um, substance is, in fact, the most universal name that I could give in answer to that question. <laughs> so I can substance. say... Substance. Substance, that's right. Yeah. Or, as Aristotle would say, Uziah. Uh, so, uh, so what is Joe Hattrop? He's a man. More universally, he's an animal. More universally yet... He's a living thing. He's a thing that's alive. More universally yet, he's a corporeal thing, which involves both living and non-living things. More universally yet, he's a substance. Mm. <laughs> so we're talking about, uh, when we're dealing with the categories, we're talking about those names which are most universal. So as all. you go up that list of universality, you find yourself in a category uh, with greater and greater commonality of other things. That's right. You're sharing more. That's right. That's right. Are artifacts substances? As things humans make? Does my iPhone have a substance? I think that uh, there are a couple of approaches that you could take to that question. Strictly speaking, Aristotle would say no. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, this is something that that you might not see clearly in the categories yet. It might be it might be more of a a question that would be more uh, more within the purview, if you will, of of the the natural philosopher, uh, whom Aristotle would call the, the physicist, the student of nature. I think fundamentally what he's thinking there is that uh, there are some beings that come to be from a natural principle. There are other beings that come to be through human art. And those are just different principles. <laughs> um, uh, natural things are not man-made. Uh, it would be untrue to say of a natural thing that it has the origin of its being in the human mind, <laughs> whereas any artifact uh, uh, made by a man would have its origin in the human mind. And just because you have different starting places there, uh, Aristotle would want to distinguish those. For the logician, that distinction is maybe a little less clear, <laughs> because, um, because there, if you're just thinking about, again, what you mean by substance when you're talking about it from the point of view of logic is... Uh, the kind of thing which exists in its own right, if you will, whereas the other categories, um, the other nine categories are the sorts of things that exist within things that exist in their own right. So just as, just as in a human being, you could say uh, you've got the human being on the one hand, but then on the other you've got its, uh, its size and its shape and its uh, relationships to other things, its place, its time, those things. You could do the same thing with an iPhone. Right. So there's certainly a strong similarity there. Right. But ultimately, I, th I think he'd say, um, uh, 
although there's a likeness to substance in the artifact, it's not exactly a substance, because uh, he's going to attribute that name primarily to natural beings. So if if the inquirer uh, asks, okay, what is that? That's Joe Hattrip, and that uh, that more universally, that's uh, a man, living thing, a substance. As soon as we start to describe that, uh, the definition of man, for instance, will include certain universal criteria. You are uh, rational, you're political, you're risible, in a way that, that sort of describes man in a way that you know doesn't describe many other things. That's right. Uh, yeah. Where does where does where does that where does that level of uh, description fit into the the categories? So. Um, uh, so I think this takes us back to that that idea of definition. So, um, so species and genus here are going to have a definite relationship to each other, and you really encounter that when you're trying to define things. So if we say that uh, Socrates is a man, and then we ask, and and we we note that when we say that, the question that we're answering about Socrates is, what is he? <laughs> what is it? Um, uh, then you can uh, you can ask well what's the content of that idea if I if I say Socrates is a man what does that mean then you give the definition so if you say something like rational animal um, uh, you've got two components to that uh, to that speech that you're articulating there a genus and a difference mm. so if we say Socrates is a man um, you're saying something very specific about the kind of thing that he is. If you say he's an animal, you're saying something less specific because there are lots of things other than men that are animals. Um, so how are, you going to, how are you going to locate Socrates' species within that wider realm of the genus? Well, by articulating a difference by which his kind is distinguished from others Not only within is he that animal, genus. He's a rational animal. He's a rational animal. And only men are rational animals. And that's an interesting uh, problem right there, because when you're really trying to define something, I, th I think you experience this in Aristotle throughout his books. Um, uh, you'll see this in the Nicomachean Ethics, for example, when he's defining things like virtue. He'll always start by giving you the genus. He'll always begin by distinguishing the genus. Oh, interesting. But then, but then you recognize, uh, so I think, uh, uh, just going back to the example that you brought up at the beginning of the interview, um, uh, when Aristotle wants to say what a virtue is, the first thing he's going to say about it is that it's a kind of habit. Yeah. When he does that, he's giving the genus. But then, uh, so that's part of the work. And, oh. and I think, in fact, Aristotle always treats that as the first part of the work. But then once you've done that, you've got to go on to differentiate it. And most of what goes into a definition is going to be differentiating the species Within the genus that within the genus that you're working, um, and again within the in the book called the categories, he's preparing you for that kind of work. So so I, I think this is this is something that's worth knowing about the categories. Um, in his other in his other works of philosophy, he will define things, but he'll sort of take for granted the fact that you know what a genus or a species is, and right. you know what differences are. You're ready to work with those things. In the categories, he's teaching you how to work with those things. So he wants you to be thinking about the concepts of genus and species in themselves there, as if to say, uh, what we're seeing 
um, a, a very significant thing that we're seeing in this work is what a species is, what a genus is, and why those are the concepts that are so crucial to definition. Okay, so maybe to backtrack, what is a genus? So, so a genus is a universal predicate uh, that answers the question, what is it? Um, I think on the whole, the way Aristotle is going to think about that is when you, when you look at an individual substance like Socrates or Phyto or this here oak tree, <laughs> um, if you ask the question, what is it? The genus is going to be the first thing that you say in answer to that question. Uh, other, um, other people in the, in the Greek tradition, I'm thinking Porphyry in particular, who's a famous, uh, commentator on Aristotle. I think he's really thinking about genus that way. Are there example. different levels of universality when it comes to genus? Because there I, are. You know, if somebody asked me, what is that pointing to an oak tree? I could get cheeky or I could, you know, get sort of, uh, mystical and say it is being or something. You That's know, right. I'm giving That's an right. accurate answer, That's right. but it's not too helpful. That's right. Yes. So, um, so there are lots of, so if you were to start at the most universal name possible, <laughs> yeah. you know, say, oh, it's a being or it's a substance. That's very unhelpful because it's so broad that it doesn't really tell you, it doesn't really tell you anything about the nature of that thing. So it's so completely a genus, undifferentiated. A statement of genus would be, uh, is this fair to say the least universal universal about a thing that is the most specific universal or is that a non I, I, th I think that's I think that's very close to what Aristotle has in mind so he'll distinguish um, in various places uh, highest genera from what he calls most proximate genera most proximate genera would be the genus so we're talking yeah so you generally when we're talking about the genus we're talking about the genus which is closest in the categorical tree if you will to the thing you're trying to define. So properly, um, if you were to ask what is Socrates, you'd say he's a kind of animal. Hmm. So you start by giving that genus which is closest to it, and then within that genus you're trying to differentiate it. A similar case would be um, in the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle's trying to define virtue again, just to go back to that, that familiar example. Um, if you asked what is virtue, you could, be, you could begin by saying, well, it's a quality. <laughs> That's in fact the category that yeah. it exists in, but like saying uh, Socrates is a substance, that would be very unhelpful because qualities uh, a triangular shape is a quality <laughs> for Aristotle. So if you say that a virtue is a quality, you haven't even distinguished it from triangles yet, which is now uh, why? Which I, how do we avoid drilling down too specifically when it comes to genus? So in other words, if I if somebody says who is that, and I say well that's an Athenian. As, as a way of uh, describing Socrates, how am I missing genus at that point? Um, I, I think probably the reason that you... Uh, yeah, how are you missing it? You're, um, th there are, there's an infinity of names that you could give to somebody based on various relationships that he has, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's a lot of the challenge here because uh, I, I think it's just true that uh, m most of the names we're going to give to something are going to be universal. They're the sorts of names that would apply to other things too. So Athenian would be an example of that. Socrates is an Athenian, but so is Plato, for example. Um, so when you're when you're looking for the genus, um, I think it's I think it's true to say <laughs> um, there's a method that you're going to have to employ uh, fairly carefully to to locate the concept that you're looking for. Um, um, 
it's it's difficult to say what exactly that method is going to be in particular cases. Um, I think, in fact, that this is one of the things that, that makes Aristotle's work so interesting, <laughs> is that when you get into a, a, a book that's scientific in character, like the Nicomachean Ethics or like the Physics, Aristotle always begins by defining the things that belong to that science so that he can make arguments about those things. Um, in the Ethics, when he defines virtue, he's going to begin by showing what the genus of virtue is. In the physics, for example, when he's defining place, he's going to begin by showing you what the genus of place is. But in both those cases, there's going to be a method by which he locates an area <laughs> uh, to look in. And um, in some ways, I think the way in which you locate that area depends on the science that you're working in. So, for example, <laughs> in the ethics, when he's defining virtue, he's going to begin with this sort of question. Uh, it seems like virtue is something that's in the human soul. So let's look at the human soul and see what sorts of things that are in it. <laughs> what are, the, uh, what are the, the items, if you will, that you find in the human soul that might possibly be a virtue? And he'll go through the soul hunting for those sorts of things. Uh, I, I believe in, in book two there of the ethics, when he does that, he ends up... Uh, fixing on three possibles, <laughs> three possible things that it might be. Um, so you see him looking within, a, within an area for the sort of thing that would reasonably answer this question, and then he'll start eliminating things. Very often that's, in fact, yep. the method that he uses. I, I believe that both in, both in the case of virtue and the ethics and in the case of place and the physics, uh, he locates the genus by a kind of process of elimination. Um, but but that that takes uh, that takes some some careful scientific thinking uh, in the categories. Um, you're not you're not really ready to do that kind of thing yet. So I think that uh, the kinds of things that he offers as a genus there are the sorts of things that uh, almost anybody would say. Uh, he's really beginning from common human experience here, um, and as a consequence. Um, uh, some of the examples that he gives of definitions in the categories are the sorts of things that end up looking much more developed, much more carefully worked out when you actually encounter them in a scientific book. So when you say um, man is a rational animal, for example, <laughs> why, do, why is animal the genus that you fix on? Well, just because it looks like something that pertains to his nature more than to the relationships that he's built for himself. So, so in this case, why not say that Athenian is a genus? Well, that's something that he's made for himself. But what is it that he has from birth? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Animal seems to fix on something more like that. Yeah. Uh, but it's also the kind of thing that almost anybody would grant. Um, right. In, in, to that degree, there's maybe something a little bit dialectical about, sure. about the nature of of, of an example of a definition that you give there. If you're going to define man as a biologist, you might end up finding a much more carefully worked out articulation of a sure. definition. What is species? So the species is the, uh, is the, uh, the concept that you get once you've done the differentiating of the genus. So, so again, going back to the, uh, that point that we were making earlier, when you ask what is something, I think both Aristotle, I think Aristotle would say the initial answer you're going to give to that, to the degree that you're prepared to, 
is the genus. But then you're going to ask, well, okay, if I'm working within that genus, how am I going to specify uh, this concept as closely as I can? How can I make it as specific as possible? Now you're going to start bringing in um, differences in order to um, in order to clean up that concept, if you will, and the species is the result of that. So Socrates, uh, the substance is man. What would be the species? I think Aristotle would say man is the species there. Animal would be gen the genus, oh, so, but then man so would man. be the species. And, and, that's and, why and rational animal. And, and then, yeah, oh, that's, a, that's exactly what you're thinking, is you're saying, well, I know he's a kind of animal, but what sort? <laughs> How do I differentiate he's him? As a, he's the rational sort. And that's the concept that's, to which you're giving the name man. Um, uh, My species is rational. That's right. Wow. Or, uh, yeah, or, or such as to... Such as to be rational? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The rational sort. <laughs> the rational sort. Now, angels are rational, but they're not rational animals. So we wouldn't say that they share our species because That's right. their species is being predicated off of another genus. Is that, is that the way I we would say it? I think that would be fair to say. Um, uh, the angel is an interesting case because... Um, uh, I think this is this is one place where where Aristotle would say certainly Saint Thomas will say this sort of thing and and I'm inclined to think that Aristotle would agree. Um, um, there are some things that uh, the logician and the uh, philosophical scientist are going to approach somewhat differently. Now, when I distinguish the logician from the philosophical scientist, what I'm thinking is that. Uh, logic is really about learning how to produce a scientific argument. In the philosophical sciences, you're employing mm. your knowledge of how to how to produce a scientific argument to actually make <laughs> science, <laughs> to actually do science. Um, uh, the consequence of that is that um, when you're looking at things from the point of view of a definite science, they might look somewhat different to you than they would from the point of view of a logician. The logician, because he's so caught up in naming things, um, isn't going to be too concerned about uh, distinctions that you might draw within the natures of those things as they would look if you were to really start to get into them. Mm. Um, a consequence of that is that um, um, for somebody like the natural scientist, I think that both St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle would say, uh, when you're dealing with an angel, that is when you're dealing with a spirit, you're dealing with something that's supernatural and therefore above the categories, not within them. And that's a whole, that's a whole nother, oh, that's, a, that's a whole nother game. But in this case, I think, uh, you'll find, uh, Aristotle and Porphyry especially, you definitely find this in Porphyry. They're very willing to say when you're doing logic, well, uh, the corporeal substance is one kind of substance, and the incorporeal substance is another kind. Sure. <laughs> and they're both substances. Uh, but the result of that is that uh, if you were thinking that uh, man is an animal, um, an animal is a living thing, living things are uh, bodily things, and bodily things are substances, well, the idea of body is actually something you encounter as you go up the categorical tree there. So at that point, you might distinguish the bodily substance from the non-bodily huh. and get and get a distinction pretty you know, high up on the tree <laughs> that would affect things going on later on. So that when you call man a rational 
animal, you're characterizing him as um, something that's rational amongst corporeal, living, sensitive things, that, that, right. that sort of right. thing. And then the angel, I think it'd be true to say, would just be in a different genus altogether, yeah. even though it's rational. Just yeah, rational, yeah, yeah. no animal. Yeah. That's why you, you, you might describe the angel as a rational incorporeal substance right. as opposed to a rational corporeal substance. And and because there's no there's no corporeal nature, it's, is is that why every angel is its own species? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so what's the next after uh, now that we got through the first of ten categories? Uh, what what's the next category? So the next uh, um, I'll actually take these as a group of three. Um, I think uh, the next three categories that Aristotle will take on are quantity, quality, and relation. And he thinks that those are, are um, um, sort of a <laughs> another level within the categories, if you will. Um, uh, quantity, again, answers uh, the question, how much or how many. Quality answers the question, um, of what sort. Um, so, so a quantitative predicate would be something like four or five. A qualitative predicate would be something like wise or triangular or <laughs> something along those lines. Um, and then relation. Um, Wait, can I stop you? Quantitative. Yes, yes. Why isn't every uh, genus quantitatively one? So, if I, if I say who's that? Well, okay, that's Socrates. He's a man. We got genus down. When I say how many is is he, you would have to say one. Uh, I must be missing the. I must be missing the point there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think this is actually a problem that you run into in more places than that. It's it's a, it's a difficulty that characterizes working through the categories, and you encounter it in various places. There are some names that we use in more than one way, <laughs> mm. um, and um, uh, consequently, a certain name like one, might have an application within a particular category, but then another application across the categories as a whole. Um, let, let me just mention here that um, the last uh, five or six chapters or so of the categories, um, I believe it's the last, uh, yeah, the last five or six chapters of the categories, um, the last five are about names that don't fit neatly into one category. They're often referred to as the post-predicamenta. <laughs> uh, these are names that I think Aristotle brings up at the end because um, they have an application to every category and not uniquely to one. So this happens. <laughs> um, there, there are names that um, you use in a categorical way. That is, they fit, at least according to a particular meaning, within one category and have a, and have a special use in that category. Um, there are names that will work across all of them. Being is the most obvious, because sure. if you say that every category is a kind of being, right. <laughs> then you're predicating being of every case. It automatically follows that being is not a category. You're being one, you're it's being a, affected, you're that's being... Right. So it's a name, but it's not a categorical name. Um, I, I think in the case of one... Uh, there's an example of a name, you, you could almost say this is happening in substance itself. If, if you take that Greek name for substance, usia, which literally means beingness, uh, 
you're you're attributing being primarily to that category, but it seems like uh, it seems like you're also preserving a use of the name that could be used across all ten. So so you've already kind of seen that happening there. Uh, unity is like that. So there's an application of the name one that belongs to number in particular, hmm. and that belongs to the category of quantity. There's another meaning of the name one that is trans-categorical, and that's that's the sense that, that we're exploring now. We could say substance is one category, quantity is one category, sure, <laughs> quality is one category. But now you mean something a little different by that name, yep. I, I think. Um, um, and this is something, this is a distinction that Aristotle will get into from time to time. Um, uh, uh, just to say what I think that distinction is, although to really, to really it takes some work to clarify this, but I think the distinction he has in mind is that when you're dealing with one as something that belongs properly to the category of quantity, you're thinking about it um, according to what um, Aristotle or a mathematician like Euclid would call the unit, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, namely the principle that measures all numbers, that thing out of which all numbers are composed. Yep. So two is two units, three is three units, four is four units. <laughs> so, um, so the unity, the one that you find in the category quantity is that specific one. Uh, when you use one trans-categorically, you're getting at a different concept there that's related to the first one, but, but it is a different meaning. And that's the concept of indivision. So anything which is undivided from itself is one. And this <laughs> in one sense this would be more applicable to the, uh, the the category of unum in it is a transcendental. Yes, is that right? that's Omnia, right. That's Omnia right. est yes. unum. And in this sense, in this sense, you're beginning to, this, to deal yeah. with what Saint Thomas would call the transcendentals, right. being one true good <laughs> those are all names Aliquid, that, that yeah. belong to all the categories not just to not just to one of them in particular okay. so how um, does quantity apply in the category sense to let's to keep it uh, exemplified uh to to the example of socrates as a substance or a man as a substance so if i were counting i, I think is, is what we're dealing with there so if i say uh Socrates is one, Plato is two, Aristotle's three, <laughs> Sophocles is four, and I've got right. I've got sixty five Athenians in the room. <laughs> yep, something like this. Uh, that would that would be one in the categorical sense. It's, it's uh, this categorical sense does not mean how many men are there, how many actual men are there in the genus. It's it's just when we need to speak about you know how many in a certain group or something like that. Yeah, right? I think that would be fair to say. Okay, and 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 in general, I think whenever you're counting. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're whenever whenever you're counting, properly speaking, you're dealing with unity as it belongs to quantity yes. specifically. Okay, so yeah. quantity after quantity is quality. Quality, and again, that's going to be dealing with. So uh, to to go back to our famous example, virtue would be an example here, and that's going to be answering the question, what sort? <laughs> so I can ask, um, I can ask, what is that? Uh, well, uh, suppose I'm pointing at Socrates. I can ask, what is he? He's a man. I'm dealing with substance. How many is he? One. I'm dealing with quantity. Uh, what sort is he? Virtuous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I'm dealing with a quality, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm answering a different sort of question. Or wise. Or wise. That's right. Pious. Mm. 
Why isn't every subsequent category just a question of quality? Because you're dealing with things that uh, that uh, flow from the intrinsic makeup of the thing. So in this case, um, uh, when we say that Socrates is virtuous or Socrates is wise, we're talking about something that belongs to him because he's the sort of thing that has a soul. This is the kind of account that Aristotle will give in the in the Nicomachean Ethics. And so when you're thinking about those kinds of names, those kinds of attributions, you're dealing with something that flows from an interior aspect of the thing. Mm. When you get into the later categories uh, uh, yes. after relation, yep. the names that you're talking about are going to be applied to the thing not because of things flowing from the interior, but things coming from the outside. So... Um, I think the easiest example to understand here um, is uh, place, the, the category of place. Aristotle refers to it as the category of where, <laughs> hmm. because um, where the thing is is actually what you're going to be saying about it, what you're actually going to be attributing to it. So again, when I say um, Socrates is in the marketplace, um, I'm saying where he is, and that's a distinct category. But when I'm talking about place... I'm not talking about something that belongs to the man, for example, um, because of things that are interior to him. That's right. I'm now talking about an attribution that comes from something exterior to him. So um, just to clarify that, um, in Aristotle's physics, when he defines place, which is one of the principal things he has to do there in order to talk about locomotion and all the things he's going to be thinking about later on, uh, he defines place as the uh, limit, <laughs> if you will, the the, um, the the surface of what it is that you're in, the room or the air or uh, water or whatever it is that, it, that you're in, whatever it is that contains you. <laughs> Your place, properly speaking, is going to be uh, the surface of that container that's touching you. Wow. And so when you say, uh, when you ask the question, where is it, what you're asking for is an answer that has to do with place. But now you're thinking about something that relates to the thing from the outside rather than from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, a, that's just a different kind of attribution. So I think, in fact, Aristotle's thinking, once you get into those last six categories, uh, where and when, position, uh, hab uh, habit, habit or having action and passion, you're dealing with names that have to do with um, the manner in which the thing exists and the manner in which you speak about it, but that comes from things that are outside of it. Mm. And that's really the big difference, I think. Yeah. Okay, that's very helpful. So, after quality, what do we have? Then we have relation. Okay. And, and relation is a kind of a boundary category, yeah. I think, in, in some ways... Uh, it's an odd one. <laughs> In some ways, I think uh, Aristotle's treating it as though it were both the last of the uh, intrinsic attributions and the first of the extrinsic ones. So the, so relation has two different aspects to it that make it really interesting. Um, the first is that um, I can distinguish between two kinds of relation. I can distinguish between a relation that something actually has to something else, 
um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas will call that a real relation. Example. Uh, fatherhood. Okay. Yeah. If I'm, uh, if I have a daughter, <laughs> mm-hmm. then I am the father of my daughter, and that's a real relation. That's, yep. um, but then he's going to distinguish that um, from what he calls a rational relation, uh, which is a relation that comes just from the attribution of something uh, in the mind. So professorship. So, so, uh, Maybe, maybe, although, although that, that might be kind of a borderline case because you might ask the question, are there real things in me that, oh, that sure. relate okay. me to somebody else as a professor? The famous example that, that uh, St. Thomas will give over and over again is uh, left and right. Oh, if so I say yes. this man is standing to the left of the pillar, this, uh-huh. this is the example he gives in the Summa. If I say that um, that man is standing to the left of the pillar, well, that depends completely on my orientation. Because from the other side, it would look like he's standing to the right. <laughs> yeah. So left and right yeah. are purely a matter of perception in this case. Um, it's no truer to say of the man, in fact, that he's to the left than to say that he's to the right. That, has, that only has to do with uh, the way in which he's being perceived, not the way he really is. I see. So that would be an example of a rational relation. Do both of those examples of relation apply to Aristotle's category of relation? I think when Aristotle's talking about the category, he's thinking about real relation in particular. Okay. Because, again, he's talking about something that you would attribute to it on the basis of uh, some kind of existence that it has. Um, so insofar as you're thinking about the categories as the ten kinds of things that exist. <laughs> I think it's the real relation that Aristotle has particularly in mind. Um, but then when you're thinking about that, um, um, there are two aspects of it that you can bring out that I, that I think uh, relate to the question that we're dealing with here, namely, is relation amongst the intrinsic attributes of a thing or the extrinsic attributes of a thing? Um, if you have a, so the first point I think is this, if you have a real relation, that can only be because there's some um, thing in you. It might be either a quantity or a quality, um, in virtue of which you relate to something else in that way. So, for example, if, um, if I say that I am twice as tall as somebody else, Suppose I say I'm twice as tall as my daughter. That's a relation. That's a relative name. Uh, I'm saying I'm double her and she's half of me in yeah. height. Um, so it's a so there's a, it's a relation that I'm naming there. But that relation is only there because I have the height that I have, <laughs> yeah. and she has the height that she has. So so it's crucial to that is that uh, that relation wouldn't exist except in virtue of something that is intrinsic to me something that is involved in my interior makeup. Um, um, So so that's the aspect in which uh, relation is, if you will, the last of the the interior attributions. On the other hand, any relation involves um, some kind of reference to something else. And consequently, if that something else weren't there, something outside of you, something other than you, there'd be no relation. <laughs> so to that degree, you're dealing with something extrinsic. So, so in the idea of relation, you have both an interior thing, 
that you're dealing with and an exterior thing that you're dealing with. Which is why it's a borderline. Which is why it's category. sort of the borderline case. Yeah. Um, when you get into the later categories, you're dealing with things that are more or less wholly extrinsic. And so you've kind of moved beyond that um, um, that um, situation. So again, with the example of place, um, unlike uh, un unlike that example of a categorical relation, um, where I say I'm, my height is twice someone else's, there, uh, my height is something that is uh, <laughs> intrinsic to me. It's not outside of me. <laughs> yep. uh, but my place is something that's outside of me. Yep. And so when I say that I'm here rather than there, it's on the basis, I, I'm attributing that to myself on the basis of something that's outside of me. Whereas when I say that I'm double somebody else, I'm not doing that. I'm still, uh, although it's relative, the relative attribution is still on the basis of something in me. And so, uh, and, and so that I think that's why you can see relation as a kind of a borderline case. So the result of that is that, and I think this is just fantastic, is, is this something that eventually you want to begin to appreciate if you're going to see Aristotle's categories not just as an arbitrary list, yes, <laughs> but as something that, but as something that's really um, something really important to master for the logician. Um, you see that you're moving from substance, that thing which is the primary being, to a series of attributes which are intrinsic to the substance, and that measure him from the inside, if you will. And then you can see a host of, of things that become interesting about the substance on the basis of those things. Um, including all sorts of ethical matters. <laughs> mm. But then you've got these last six categories, all of which have to do with exterior attributions. Right. And you can kind of march through them and see, uh, uh, um, if you're careful about it, what those things are on the basis of which you make those attributions. And I think that Aristotle's claim is that uh, you do have an exhaustive list there. Um, uh, there are two places where St. Thomas uh, famously kind of goes through the list. One of them is in his commentary on book two of Aristotle's physics and the other is in uh, the commentary on book five of Aristotle's metaphysics where he gives an account of all of the categories and goes through them in order and does something like what we're doing here um, and there too I think he wants you to see them as an exhaustive list wow. <laughs> that really account for every every conceivable way in which you might try to um, I'm going to I'm going to put it this way because I think that this um this relates to the idea, relates the idea to the the understanding mind, <laughs> uh, the mind trying to know things. Um, uh, once you go through these steps, you really see these as the various ways in which the thing is measured. Yes. Uh, in which the thing is modulated, if you will. So I've got a substance; it exists. But now, how is it modulated? How is it measured? <laughs> what are its uh, What are its limitations? What are the things that allow me to really draw a line around it and to see it thoroughly from every side? That's what the categories are doing, yes. <laughs> showing you the various ways in which you can in, in which you can modulate a substance. And again, some of those have to do with uh, intrinsic features of the thing. Others have to do with extrinsic features of the thing. And the relation would be the intrinsic features. Relation would concern rather the intrinsic features that are uh, caused by extrinsic uh, they're the yeah they, it has the yeah it has to do with the intrinsic features of the thing which uh, which uh, 
I guess you could sort of put it this way. This this is this is a little metaphorical, but <laughs> but in some ways it's in some ways it's a nice description. Um, uh, it relation is a way of looking at the intrinsic features of a thing insofar as they give that thing the capacity to enter into a community with other things. Hmm. Something along those lines. When you're looking at a thing's relationships, um, you're beginning to understand it um, as though it's a part of a larger world. Yeah. <laughs> And not completely sufficient unto itself. There's a beautiful uh, kernel that's implicit there. That is, all things are relational by nature. I think that's right. When you're dealing with creatures, uh, a, <laughs> when you're dealing with creatures, that's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, anything that has a cause of its being well, even, is going even, to have to be even relational. Even when you're dealing with the non-creature, uh, he's knowable. That's right. That's right. And uh, he, he's knowable and he's lovable, um, and he even has knowledge and love within himself. Yes. <laughs> uh, re- relation is, is one of those, those really uh, interesting concepts because it's, in fact, through the concept of relation that, uh, that the church doctors will begin to discourse on the Trinity. Yes. And that's a, that's a remarkable thing. You're not dealing with categorical relation anymore when you do that. Because this would be a violation of divine simplicity? I think that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that so yeah so a great deal of caution is needed in thinking about those things when you're when you're dealing with with supernatural beings especially God, um, uh, uh, but I think it's true to say that uh, th- there's nothing that relation <laughs> uh, there's nothing the understanding of which doesn't involve relation, and because all creatures are ordered to God as to an ultimate end, it's also going to be the true that they depend on something other than themselves and. They depend on each other in order to achieve that ultimate wow. end, and that's all that's all built on that idea that's of relation. Right. When Aristotle says that man is by nature political, does he have relation in mind? Uh, man is a political animal? I think that would be fair to say, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a... Um, Maybe there are lots of different relationships that you end up thinking about there, but, but, sure. cer- but certainly um, uh, what Aristotle is going to do in the in the beginning of um, his politics is to think about the human being as a relational animal um, step by step through the relationships that he actually exhibits. So he begins by talking about the family. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I I don't know of of an example uh, other than an an example like double and half that's used more frequently to exemplify real relations than father and son, son and father. Right. right. So familial relationships are certainly predicamental relations. Um, when you start dealing with man as a political animal, now you're thinking about him not so much insofar as he's part of a family, but insofar as he's part of a city, part of the polis. Yes. Um, and so there are going to be different relationships there, but I think it'd be fair to say that we're dealing with relations. Yeah. Okay. What, what's after relation? So after relation, uh, uh, we're going to get those last six. And, and again, just to put those in order, uh, where and when. And in that case, uh, you're thinking... Where and when is one category? Or no, there's this two. Two categories. Okay. Yeah, so m- more often than not, um, these categories are translated by, um, by translators reading Aristotle's Greek as place and time. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit. Um, you get into like a Hegelian sphere, almost, or you know, like this linear, like we're in time. Yeah, it's a little. It's a little pre-existent yeah, yeah. bubble. Yeah, I think. Th- I think it's a little bit deceptive to just call them place and time because um, what you're really talking about. This goes back to the the whole idea um, of understanding the nine categories after substance as attributes of substances. <laughs> um, whenever you give a categorical name, it's the sort of thing that ultimately you want to be able to predicate of a substance. Uh, place and time are not themselves predicable of animals, right? You can say that an animal is in a place, but you can't say that an animal is a place. <laughs> right. So um, I think this is something that Aristotle will make clear in the physics. Place is its own kind of being. Time is its own kind of being. Um, so if I'm thinking about the categories as the sorts of things that I can attribute to a substance, then I'm, I'm going to see fairly fairly readily, I think, that um, um, what I would attribute to something like Socrates is where he is, is it where he lives, <laughs> when he lives. Um, those are going to be based on place and time. But they're not just. Can the you same, say more quickly about time, time being its own kind of being? So, from a genus perspective, if I ask you, what is it? What yeah, do, what yeah, do you yeah, say? yeah. So, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so this this gets us into some uh, into some some sticky physical thinking, um, uh, but I think this is the kind of thing that that Aristotle will say. So, just as a just as an orientation here, we're we're really referring to Book Four of the Physics now. Um, in book three of the physics, let's go all the way back. In book two of the physics, Aristotle defines nature, which is um, a central principle uh, in that science. In book three, he defines motion. And then in book four, he defines place and time. And those all end up being, um, uh, those all end up being things which are going to be principles of later proofs. Um, uh, so just one more remark about that uh, that might help to orient that a little bit more. When you're reading something like Euclid's geometry, um, uh, Euclid begins by giving a list of definitions. So he'll define the triangle, the square, the point, the straight line, the right angle, <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm. Before he ever tries to do proofs about those things, he defines them. And I think what Euclid is thinking, and he gets this from Aristotle, is that... Um, uh, the middle term of a demonstrative argument is always a definition. <laughs> if you're trying to show that such and such a feature is true of triangles, you can only do that by first defining the triangle, and then uh, ultimately you show those features about the triangle through its definition. So defining the thing is an important thing right in the beginning. If you get the definition mixed up, you're going to end up coming to false conclusions later on down the road. Um, uh, um, that's true of mathematics. It's also true for Aristotle of physics. So the reason he begins the physics by defining things like nature and motion and place and time is because those are going to be the middle terms in his demonstrations later on in that science. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something very Euclidean there in that, in that respect. So that's so, so in book four, he's defining place, and that's the thing that we're dealing with here. Now, when he defines place... Um, he ends up defining it as the limit of the body that contains the thing 
that's in a place. So he's literally thinking something like this. If I am in the particular place that I'm in, I'm surrounded by something that's touching me. Uh, the air, the chair that I'm sitting in, the desk, whatever it might be. Um, involved in that, in my surroundings, is uh, a surface that is touching me, that's in contact with me. <laughs> um, and so, um, and so uh, what the place really is, is that surface. <laughs> Uh, but but now let but now let's think about uh, and and that surface is distinct from say the exterior surface of my body. So Aristotle in, the, in that place is going to want to distinguish between um, the exterior uh, sorry uh, the surface which is as it were the exterior limit of my body and the surface which is the interior limit of whatever it is that's surrounding me and containing me. Wow. So, something along those lines. Um, so again, you can see why this is, this is taking some a little bit sticky physical thinking because you're sure. really thinking now about how bodies relate to each other and what it means right. to be in a space and what it right. means to relate to other bodies and things of this sort. But that's the kind of thing that he has in mind. And that limit isn't very physically clear-cut at all. It might not be. It might involve multiple different kinds of bodies. Right. So, I, so I'm, I'm in the air, but I'm also sitting in the chair and I'm leaning on the desk. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to appeal to multiple substances well, there right. to actually describe and you're, that and you're limit. Going around the, yeah, you yeah. know, spinning in space through around the mm -hmm, sun and mm -hmm. the yeah. molecules of my skin are blowing off all, all the time right. and the air and, you know, the moisture in the air is being absorbed in my skin. So it's not like there's a clear cut bubble that I'm in that would constitute place. That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so that... Uh, yeah, and so, Aristotle's so you, aware of all that. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's true. In fact, he gives some examples, I think, that, that show that he's aware of that complexity. How um, are you, you going to define time, by the way? I, I might say that, something about that. I, I think I'm really that, curious. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll say something physics. about that in a moment, but, um, but I think that um, I think this remark about place will actually make that, uh, make time a little bit more accessible. These are all difficult concepts, and I, I think it's helpful to, to recognize that um, um, you, can give a, you can give a kind of a general sense of these things, but probably you're not going to feel really satisfied unless you, <laughs> unless you really dig into it. But I think um, when you're dealing with place, and so I'll say this about place and then I'll extend it to time, which is very closely related. When you're dealing with, with place as a thing, as its own kind of thing, um, I think this is the kind of thing Aristotle has in mind. Uh, at bottom, you're really thinking about a surface because we're defining uh, we're defining place as the surface, the interior surface of the containing body, something along those lines. Um, then you have to ask the question: How is uh, place different from quantity? Because surfaces, in fact, are the kinds of things that Aristotle would call quantities. Um, uh, Aristotle will distinguish quantities into uh, number on the one hand and magnitude on the other. <laughs> so, I, don't, I don't understand. How is, how yeah, so, is, so I'll, I'll say a word about yeah. that. Five would be an example of a number. Uh-huh. Um, the rectangular surface of this desk would be an example of a magnitude. Uh, magnitudes have bigness. Mm -hmm. Numbers don't really have bigness. <laughs> yep. So when you're dealing with numbers, you're asking the question, how many? Uh, 
when you're dealing with magnitudes, you're asking the question, how much? So magnitude always involves the idea of dimension or extension. So triangles are magnitudes, rectangles are magnitudes. Um, on the other hand, five, six, or seven are numbers. So whenever you're dealing with a surface, you're dealing with a plane, something like that. You're dealing with something that uh, I think Aristotle would say is properly speaking quantitative, but the reason you call it the place, the reason you call it a place, is because, as opposed to just a surface, is because you're seeing this surface as actually carrying out a real function. It's doing a work, if you will, that goes beyond just being a surface. Namely, it's containing. Mm. That's what gives it uh, the character of place. So when I refer to this surface, which is, e which is equal, by the way, to the size of my body, right? Because that's what's yep. touching me <laughs> yep. all the way around. The surface that's equal um, in size to my body, the reason I don't just say that it's a plane and just leave it at that, but call it a place, is because that plane is actually containing me. And that's what the place is. But I think the, I think the crucial thing uh, to see here when you're comparing it to the category of where <laughs> is that uh, that containing surface is one thing. Socrates is something else. Yeah. <laughs> so the place is a different thing from the substance, um, and that and, and that surface might have any number of things predicated about it. And that surface. Um, like you're contained by your clothing, right? So, and that that is always moving in place. Um, if you're in a car, you're contained by that, and that's always moving place. So, place seems to relate to an infinite amount of sub places, uh, if that makes sense. I think that's fair to say. So, yeah, there's an order of places, maybe. It's almost that, impossible to yeah. pin down place. Yeah. So, so. Uh, uh, um, when Aristotle's defining place there, one thing that he'll say about it is that what we're defining is a thing's proper place. <laughs> because if you define place as the limit of the containing body, there's only one thing that can be in that place at, uh, at one time. Right? Yeah. It's my place. Can't possibly be anybody else's place unless I leave it. Right, right, right. Um, but, but there's also what he'll call common place, this office, for example. Um, that multiple bodies might be in, but that, but the reason that's possible is because it's bigger than me. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so, so I think what Aristotle is thinking there is that um, place really is its own kind of thing. It's different from a human being, and that's one reason why you why you'd say, for example, that there are ten different kinds of being and not just one. A substance is one kind of being, but a place is just a different kind of being. <laughs> but when you're dealing with the category, uh, what, you're really, what you're really talking about is not the place, but the name or attribution that you would give to Socrates on the basis of that place. So, um, so the category of where would involve descriptions like in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, in the Parthenon. Is the category like of that. place predicated on the category of relation? In other words, is place just a more descript way of defining relation? I think it would be fair to say that you have a specific sort of relation. Place is a specific there. sort of relation. So you couldn't understand place except through relation. So just to be true. clear, 
everything for the last 10 minutes that you just said about Aristotle's definition of place, that is the container, is not what he means by his category of place. At the very least, there's a distinction to draw there, because when you're talking about place itself, you're talking about a thing. <laughs> yep. When you're talking about the category, you're talking about a name. Okay. Which is attributable to a substance through that thing. So, so I can say Socrates is one thing, his place is a different thing. The attribution in the marketplace is a name yep. that I'm attributing to him on the basis of the place that he occupies. So the category of place would be a, an attribution of local relation. Yes, I think that would be, yeah. How be do non-material uh, beings, do the, does, does place even apply to them? If I say uh, justice, uh, what is the place? How do we speak of a place of justice? Yeah, maybe there maybe there are two distinctions that we could make there. Um, if you're if you're talking about a kind of a an attribution that belongs to something uh, non-material, uh, I think you you encounter that question in at least two ways. <laughs> uh, one might be if you're asking the question about a spiritual being like the angel, as we were earlier. Yeah. Um, but then but then uh, uh, as in the example that you just. Uh, suggested you might do it with respect to some quality, say of the soul, <laughs> yeah. which isn't itself a substance, but um, but an attribute of a substance. Um, uh, just because that question is interesting in itself, I'm thinking maybe it'd be nice to think about both those cases. Um, I think you could say that there are ways in which you can attribute place both to the angel who doesn't have a body and to the attribute, something like justice. Okay, so or, how, do, how do we do it for the angel? So with the angel... Because the angel is a substance. By the way, we're actually going to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin here, right? <laughs> the answer is 43. That's right, yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm drawing that from a demonstration that was given in my graduate school days. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> we don't need to go into That's that. Great. Anyways, for, for, for the record, the answer is 43. Um, um, so when you're dealing with an angel... Um, uh, uh, there, it's an important thing to to see that um, you're dealing with a being that has uh, power over the material world. He's able to exercise powers that belong to his nature uh, over the material world. He can affect motion uh, among physical things. Uh, here's here's a, a great example that I think is... Uh, really essential to theology. Uh, St. Thomas uh, will insist that angels can relate to human beings as teachers. Mm. But the way they do that is by interacting with our, our knowing powers. The angels actually have, not to the degree that God does, <laughs> uh, but St. Thomas will insist on this, that the angels have the ability to strengthen um, um, the human learning powers, the human learning faculties. Maybe through access to the inner senses? Access to the imagination, right. principally, probably. So they don't have uh, access yeah. to the, the intellectus? The or intellectual the... spirit. Yeah, I think Yeah, I think St. Thomas would say that's God's, yes, <laughs> that's right. God's prerogative. So, yeah, they can't just insert a concept into the mind. Yeah. But they can affect our senses in such a way as to make it... Um, is to make things clearer to us, mm. um, and that's a, that's an amazing claim to make. So, yes. so, um, so as soon as you accept that the angels have power over the material world, then you can say, well, they're acting on this or they're acting on that, 
And because they're acting on things um, which are in place, you can say that the angels have a place to that degree. They are where they're acting. <laughs> wow. But what you what you don't mean is that they're contained by places, right? That 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 would be that'd be true only of yes, only of bodies. So in that sense, places. an angel can be in many places at once. That's right. You can act in That's many right. places. That's at, at least conceivable. Maybe wow. even many times at once. <laughs> yes. And wow. so far, and so far as they're not, uh, they're not. Uh, limited in time in the way that corporeal substances are. Whereas a corporeal substance cannot be in many places at once. Many so places even, or times. Even in the glorified body, Aquinas says that you can sort of, the bodies can interpenetrate, but they can't, they can't yeah, yeah. be in the same place at the same time. I think that would be fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, so that'd be to think about it on the side of the angel, um, on the side of something like virtue, you ask, is it possible for virtue to be in place? There, I think you're. There, I think you're dealing with um, something that, um, uh, as far as I can see, something that Saint Thomas would would call more accidental. <laughs> so you'd say the virtue is accidentally in place, and what you'd mean by by that is that it's a feature of the thing which is in place. So justice is in Socrates, lines. who's in the market. Yeah. Okay. Something along those lines. Great. So place isn't maybe something that you would properly attribute to. Um, something like virtue, but there is a way in which you could do that. You might you might have reasons for wanting to do that. Sure. Um, At Thomas Aquinas College, virtue abounds. That's right. Here. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and then, uh, oh, you're still getting to time. Yeah. So just briefly about time. That, 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 that's a tricky you can one. Tell so, I'm so I'm just gonna I, I'm just gonna give the brief answer to that as a kind of an introduction to the idea. Um, uh, partly because I don't take myself. To you know the how they do in the movies there. is just draw two dots on a paper and then put the paper together slowly and say wormhole. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you could so probably give me a better definition. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so time is, uh, and uh, maybe this, th th this, this is worth remarking on. Time is always proximate to place whenever Aristotle's treating it. So, so he defines place in the physics and then goes on shortly thereafter to define time. He talks about void in between, which is interesting, mm. but, uh, but, um, but certainly place and time are the, the, uh, central features of, of book four of the physics there. But then when he's talking about the categories, he always lists when and where next to each other. So, so in both places, it seems like Aristotle's thinking that, the ideas of place and time are very closely associated with each other. Um, I think the reason for that, at least one good reason for that, is because both place and time are understood as containers. Hmm. Um, place contains bodies in the way in which a surface contains something. Time contains bodies and as soon as I say this, you'll see why time is the trickier concept. <laughs> time contains bodies in the way in which a number contains something. And I think this is, oh. this is literally um, the kind of thing Aristotle is thinking about. If you look at, um, if, you, if you examine your experience of time, you're going to see that there's a very close correlation between time and motion. Um, right. Clocks. And by motion, you mean uh, a movement from potency to actuality. I'm thinking principally just about locomotion. You're talking about locomotion. I'm starting there at least. Okay. Okay. I, I, th I think uh, I think it's true of any motion, but but uh, locomotion certainly gives you the the easiest access to the idea. Okay. So if you imagine a clock, 
the minute and hour hands moving around the face of the clock, they measure time because they're mobile, because there's a motion going on there. Uh, and and the, clock, the clock is a very deliberate kind of device. Um, you see two things about the clock. First, you've got regular motion. The motions on a clock don't speed up and slow down. They're absolutely consistent, absolutely regular. It's, uh, it's a, the, the uh, more regular the motion, the better the clock. <laughs> um, but clocks are also numerical. Uh, they're divided into numbers. So our customers divide divide the hour into 60 minutes, and you just watch that minute hand move around <laughs> counting from 1 to 60. Um, the reason we do that is because time is the sort of thing that um, measures something by number. And, uh, and I think the kind of thing we're thinking about there is that if you're dealing with something that's subject to motion, its existence take another step, its duration is going to be related to its mobility. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for this reason, um, St. Thomas will distinguish between the duration of a body, um, even the duration of a human being, and the duration of an angel. It's just not the same kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and the reason is that our duration is... Uh, um, bound up in our mobility. Um, and so what time amounts to is the measure of the motion of something. This is Aristotle's central idea anyway. Yep. Um, when we measure motion, we do it by distinguishing moments in the motion. And as soon as you distinguish moments, you're counting. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. And again, that's what the clock is doing. You yep. listen to that second hand, just counting off, counting off the motion. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. Um, and so Aristotle will define time as the number of a motion according to before and after. And he's thinking... Uh, as those moments go by, one, two, three, four, five, they're proceeding in an order of priority. And it's the numerability of those motions, uh, of those moments, <laughs> that amount to time. Um, now, if you say something like that, then, then what sort of thing does time end up being? Well, it's a measure of the duration of something. And when you're dealing with the measure of the duration of something, if it's the sort of thing that has a beginning and end, as we do, we're born and die, yep. <laughs> um, then that time, in fact, contains the thing. Right. So that we're the, surrounded the by the time in, in the which we live. The thing in motion has a duration. That's right. Not, not uh, the thing is, as moderns would speak of it, in time, as if time has a predetermined duration. Right. I think that would be fair to say. To Aristotle's thinking about both place and time as. This is this is one of the things that I think is really unique to him, and um, in some ways, the trickiest thing to see about his account takes takes some thought to see why he would put it this way. <laughs> but he, um, he's he's not thinking about place and time as something just separated from body. It's it's a um, modern math likes to think about place and time this way, as if they were empty spaces. That's right. Things that are kind of self subsistent. Um, that bodies move around in, and in that in that way, it's very easy to start thinking about place and time as if they were sort of uh, uh, infinite beings in their own right. So, whereas, right. whereas Aristotle um, is very clear about the fact that both place and time 
are um, accidental beings. They belong to bodies. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so what is place? Um, um, it's an extrinsic measure of body that belongs to the containing medium. What is time? It's an extrinsic measure of being that belongs to it insofar as its motion is numerable. That's right. Uh, when you talk about the time of something, you're not dealing with anything other than the motions that are inherent to those things. This raises some interesting questions that aren't easy, easy to answer. For example, is there one time that contains all things? <laughs> um, uh, that's a question that Aristotle will think about to some degree, but, that, but that's a... Um, that's a that's a tricky question to answer. You can see why, because if you say that time is just the the number of motion, then if you say, well, there's my motion and there's your motion, and there's the motion of the car driving down the highway, right now there's the motion of of the the sun doing whatever it does out in space. Yeah, there are lots of motions, an infinity of motions in our world. <laughs> does that mean there's an infinity of times? At a certain point, you have to answer that question. Aristotle gives an account of that um, uh, to some degree, but uh, but but the but again, the principal feature is that there is that he really wants to think about place and time as measures of bodies that belong to them, either through their presence in a medium larger than themselves, or um, um, uh, or through their mobility, and consequently, whether you're talking about uh, place and time as the basis of names, as we're doing in the case of the, of the categories, uh, Socrates is in the marketplace, uh, Socrates uh, uh, was in the marketplace at three o'clock yesterday, <laughs> something like that. Whether you're dealing with those things, or whether you're dealing with place and time themselves as actual physical things, um, you're thinking about them as posterior to substance. Mm. They're features of substances. They're right. not. They're not independent things in their own right. They're distinct from the substance insofar as the substance is being a man, and it's being in this place are distinct things about it. But there's still a dependence. There's still a dependency of the place and the time on substance. So that's, that, that's a. That's a. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, an interesting and I think a really important feature of it Aristotle's is. thought. And and it might be a feature which, which would lead you to uh, characterize the categories the way you do, right? <laughs> because yep. because if you if you if you categor if you um, if you think about these names as all being related to substance as to some primary thing, probably that's going to be based on the fact that uh, as real things, these things have a kind of dependence on substance as a primary being. And and uh, uh, just to say this, I think this is a a, a really crucial feature of of both Plato and Aristotle's thought is just that claim that there's a primary kind of being in the world yes. and that being is substance. Mm -hmm. And that there are different substances. Different substances and different attributes, different sorts of attributes of those substances. Wow. So I guess this is good news that we, we cannot be on the wrong side of history. <laughs> <laughs> This is how we understand time, right? Uh, wow. Okay. So we got, we got, uh, let's see, we got wh uh, where and when. What's next? 
Yeah, so then we've got the last four, uh, position, habit, uh, action, and passion. Um, and these, uh, again, I think, uh, uh, let, let me just kind of uh, go through these uh, more quickly. I think, again, what you're going to see in these is something like what you were seeing in Where and When. You're talking about attributions that are made of substance based on something extrinsic to the substance. So that's what they're going to have in common. Position. Um, you're talking about the the attitude of the body sitting as opposed to standing, something mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, there again, I think Aristotle's thinking that's a kind of an extrinsic measure of the thing. Um, this is more. This is maybe most obvious with the category of habit because um, I, I think here he is literally thinking of clothing, <laughs> and there it's pretty obvious mm -hmm. that. Um, that you're talking about Where, position comes after I'm sorry habit comes after position after right? position okay. that's right um, uh, habit is in many ways the most obvious I think because you can see when you put on clothes you say now I am clothed I'm wearing shoes now I'm shod shod is one of the yes. examples yeah wearing a, I forget what example I remember shod is one of the examples yeah, wearing armor out. might be another one I'm forgetting yeah. But, but there is very clear that uh, if you say the man is shod, you're saying that on the basis of something that's extrinsic to him because the clothing is not something that's interior to him. So uh, is, is, uh, is the category of habit particular to human substances? Aristotle will or uh, St. Thomas will make that a, a claim like that uh -huh. insofar as insofar as the equipment of an animal is natural to it. Yes. <laughs> his hair and his claws and right, right. things of that sort. Uh, both, its, uh, both its clothing, if you will, and its, uh, its uh, means of self-defense. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that does raise an interesting question, whether in some way the fullness of the categories belongs to the human being. Yeah. I, I think that's Well, it seems question. Aristotle's go-to example is... Is always human based, right? I think in that's his, true. In his list of ten, that's right. Yeah, everything, every predicate that's listed in the in, cha in chapter four of the categories is where he gives you the list, and, and every predicate is the sort of thing you might say about a man, right? And probably that's not an, uh, that's not just by chance that he's doing that. Yep. <laughs> um, action and passion. Um, um, here, I think the idea is that if you so, so examples of examples of predicates in these categories, um, cutting and burning. Um, he's saying are examples of action. Um, um, if I say I'm cutting the cloth or I'm burning the soup, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, those would be examples of of action attributes. On the other hand, passion is just the opposite of that. Um, I'm being cut or I'm being burnt. Um, in both those cases, I think Aristotle is thinking when you uh, when you predicate an action of somebody, it's with reference to the object that he's acting on, and so you have that external reference there. And then similarly with passion, um, if you're undergoing something, um, it's going to be the receiving end of some action. Yeah. So, um, so because the passion is suffered. Um, uh, on the receiving end from some agent other than yourself. On the other hand, if an action is being performed, it's being performed on some patient other than yourself. Yeah. To that degree, again, you're thinking about um, so this is an my, external frame of my reference. My biggest there. question about the categories, and I don't know if it's a good question, but uh, the very last one is passion. 
And that very much seems to be uh, present even at the level of the first category of, of substance in that uh, all of this, uh, the, you know, who are you, your substance, that is uh, something done to you, given to you. Like you don't cause it, you don't act it, it's been done unto you. Uh, so it seems like at the bedrock there is, there is this ontological receptivity that causes... All of it, all things, you know, that we can speak of, uh, at least with creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that? I think there's uh, the, uh, that. That's a direction in which um, I. Th I mean, Aristotle says nothing like that, right? Certainly not in the categories. Right. Yeah. Cer certainly right. not in the categories. That, that, in book that, ten of that the ethics, maybe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're thinking about you're thinking about the sorts of things you're going to be encountering in places in places where you're beginning to think about man's relationship to God. Yes. Uh, certainly, um, um, I think those are the places where this sort of thing is going to come up. Let me just say this about that. I, I suspect that this is another one of those places where, so. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say something, make sort of a blanket statement about these, about all these sorts of things, but then try to capture the, that idea about passion um, within this, uh, within this idea. Um, when we're moving from, as philosophers, when we're moving from the study of logic into the study of physics, which, from a certain point of view, is the universal study <laughs> because physics is the study of all natural being in that respect it's all inclusive the only thing that it doesn't include is um the things that we can't sense <laughs> and that's a uh, as plato would say another world <laughs> that we're dealing with there um so in some sense physics is a, a very universal knowledge even a completely universal knowledge when we're moving from logic to physics I think that's where we're seeing the immediate application of the idea of the categories. Yes. And so when and so when Aristotle's talking about action and passion, the place that he's going to bring that to bear um sort of right away maybe maybe properly if you will, um is going to be um uh in locomotion, bodies affecting each other, bodies moving one another and receiving motion from one another. Um, that's probably going to be the sort of thing that you're going to be dealing with when you're talking about those categories. <laughs> but but now we're going to experience this thing that, that we've already encountered, where you start using words, you start using names, and then uh, once you get to an elevated enough position, you see the need to expand the meanings of those names, to try to push them into new realms of thought. And this happens when you get into metaphysics or theology. <laughs> so I think in, in some sense, this is just what the theologian has to deal with. Um, he's got to recognize that he has to use uh, the, the common names of his experience on a whole new field and so it becomes necessary for him to think about the method by which he can expand those names yes. so when we're talking about action and passion for example we're talking about the ways in which bodies affect each other and we're thinking about motion as the proper result <laughs> of action and passion but uh, uh, when we start thinking about our relationship to divine things now we're talking about a much broader concept of receptivity it's not always going to involve motion. Certainly, if we say that we've received things from our Creator, 
it's not going to involve motion on his part it, because it he's because he's completely immobile. But, but I don't I don't think it's an equivocation to to note that our actual access to divine things occurs through the bodily passion of a divine thing. Yes, yeah, so give an example of something you're thinking about there. Christ's passion. Okay. Like his body right, 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 right. is affected. And this causes, this is a constitutive element of this, is it at least induces our knowledge of the divine. Yeah, so uh, uh, I, I think this is... Um, um, I think this is something that's that's definitely going on there. That by becoming incarnate, um, God makes it possible for us to see and to hear Him on our own level. He gives us access to divine wisdom that's right. in some in some sense through a sensible means by Himself being yeah. affected. Yeah. So we're uh, so so maybe we're talking about a. Um, the meeting place of two worlds here. Yes. <laughs> one, um, one in which we're using the names common to our experience, which are initially made to, um, to define and describe corporeal realities. Um, uh, but then finding new ways to use those names in such a way as they can begin to become uh, discourse about divine things. Right. And it seems like in some way the, the incarnation is, is about that is teaching us how to do that to use um, uh, discourse um, to give us access to the divine nature. It seems to me that um, that this is something. I mean, there's <laughs> obviously there's a, there's a lot to say here. I think that this is certainly the kind of thing that Christ is teaching us to do uh, through the parables, for example. Um, but it's something that, that Plato and Aristotle are already trying to teach us how to do. Yes. Um, I think this is, in some ways, a defining feature of Plato's dialogues. He wants to show us, he wants us to convince us of sin in this respect. <laughs> that um, we have been ordering human speech culturally um, to the attainment of pleasure as if human speech had no order in itself to anything higher. And he's trying to show us that this is uh, not just a mistake, but a kind of sacrilege. <laughs> because we've taken something which is already in its own nature quasi-divine, namely speech, thought, and we're ordering it to the things of the body as if it had access to nothing higher than that. That's right. And he's trying to show us that speech is not for the sake of the service of the body, principally. It's for the sake of service of the truth. Yes. And he's already trying to show us there, I think, <laughs> that we need to elevate the way in which we're using our words. And um, and finally, know. he's going to show us that Socrates, by by dying. That's right. By giving his That's body. Right. By, by giving witness to this. That's right. <laughs> he's accused of... Uh, various detractors of hypocrisy so people will tell him you would never live the way that, that you would never actually uh yourself walk the road that you're describing socrates mm. but then uh, but then he does <laughs> oh. he, he actually does lay his life down for the yep. truth uh, which is a this very is a whole other podcast we should take yep. <laughs> uh, but i've yeah i've 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 thought often that there's aquinas says that john the baptist prepares the way for Christ in word and deed is something about his self-denial actually prepares the way 
for Christ to show up. But I think what John the Baptist does in Jerusalem is uh, has a little has a cousin in Socrates who's doing the same thing in Athens. He's the wisest because he he knows that he doesn't know. He gives his life, but he Socrates seems to prepare the city of reason as the Baptist is preparing the city of faith. Mm-hmm. And when Athens and Jerusalem come together, you get Rome. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Very, very well said. Another topic That's right. for another day. This was great. Anything else you want to say about the categories? I think uh, they've, they've been lost, right? Uh, as far as like... I think that's true. Moderns don't want to talk about them. So something, is it fair to say that the modern counterfeit or the modern parody of uh, Aristotle's logical framework that is the categories would be something like nominalism? That is, things are what uh, we, we, what we say they are. Um, T- tell us just briefly about uh, the modern uh, attempts at a replacement for something like the categories. I, I would I would say uh, um, I I, th- I think that I think that's true that um, um, if you take Aristotle's categories and watch them sort of walk into the modern age, um, it's a kind of a nominalist understanding of them that you end up seeing there. That is, <laughs> what does that mean? You're only talking about names. That's right. Yeah. So um, I, I think this is I think this is in fact what's been lost in in Aristotle's categories, and that's really crucial. And and uh, it's a nice place to end because it uh, I think it builds on w- what we were just saying about human speech. The principal insight in the categories I think is this: that when we use names as human beings, human beings are unique because we use voice. Mm to signify thought. And there's really no other kind of creature that does that. The angel just is pure thought. He doesn't use voice to signify thought. So he's above that, the beasts are below that. Man is the being who acts this way, who uses voice to signify thought. What Aristotle's really seeing there is that when we use voice to name things, those names give us an access to nature. Mm. Um, nature is not something that's inaccessible to us Um, our minds are filled with nature and when we give voice to what's in our minds we are naming things Um, so there are two there are two ways in which uh, I think we're tempted to go wrong in modernity (laughs) one is to deny the richness of the access to reality that exists in thought and to treat things like categories just as names. The other is to give up on naming altogether. Yeah. And I think this I think this um, speaks to the the temptation that we have um, to reduce scientific knowledge to mathematical knowledge. Mathematical expression is largely symbolic, <laughs> and nowadays even logical expression is largely symbolic. Uh, so when we're dealing with science. We have a strong temptation nowadays to just give up on naming altogether. Whereas what Aristotle is really seeing is that speech, through speech, we access things. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's what he's showing us in and the categories. And through things, we access the divine. That's right. That's right. The material world of our sensitive experience is a road to divine being. We can understand the divine being through that, through that sensible wow. being. So that's that's something that's really rich and really important, and I think that that we tend to lose sight of is the fact that when we speak about things, <laughs> um, 
the names that we that we naturally tend to come up with to talk about those things already involve a grasp of nature, and that's really the beginning of scientific knowledge. Um, one um, one important result of that, I think, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but I'll just say one more time because I think it's really important in some ways. In some ways, this is what Aristotle has to say to the modern scientific world. <laughs> um, mathematics is only one scientific method. Um, so when Aristotle does physics, his physics is not math. Right. <laughs> it's a completely different kind of scientific knowledge that involves its own method. But you would never even you would never even begin to develop a science of the sort that he's thinking about there unless you thought that I can define things through speech. Um, and where those definitions involve um, a, a primal, radical grasp of the nature of the thing. So wow. that I'm encountering being when I That's use right. those names. That's right. Uh, when I'm defining those things. Um, so I think that's a really crucial insight here. That's beautiful. Okay, so now we're ready to read the categories. We can start anyway. <laughs> we can start. Uh, what do you want to plug? What, what, about? Are you, what are you working on? Any books that people can buy? Uh, anything you want people to know about? Well, I am. Uh, uh, this uh, this isn't imminent, but it's a uh, but it's a, a future project. I am I am working on um, uh, turning my dissertation into a monograph, and what and what that's going to do is uh, it's going to look at the the kind of thing that um, Aristotle calls substance in the categories, which which even there is the the primary thing that you're thinking about. And it's going to compare it. It's going to compare that concept to the concept of substance as it appears in Aristotle's Metaphysics. Mm. There's a tendency nowadays to think that um, the the most modern mainstream opinion about the categories is that it was an early attempt on Aristotle's part to do metaphysics. Mm. Um, uh, that story goes that Aristotle made that first attempt in his youth. Uh, decided that it wasn't adequate. He wasn't 35 yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then the the metaphysics was kind of his mature, yeah, uh, the, the the mature edition, if you will. Um, that uh, if you take that approach, um, then you're supposing that by substance he just means the same thing in both those works. Whereas it seems to me that if you really think about substance as a mode of naming, which is how mm-hmm. we've been thinking about it today. Um, as opposed to the primal mode of being, which is how yes. he's thinking about it in the metaphysics, then you get some interesting relationships. Oh, going that's in. good. So that, I think that's an important question nowadays. Um, it's imp- important for us to be thinking about because um, I think you lose a lot of things if you don't see the categories as a work of logic as opposed to metaphysics. Um, um, and if if you're able to do that, if you're able to look at uh, look at it that way, <laughs> then there's a, a, a tremendous amount of consistency. Do you have a title yet? Uh, the tentative title is "Form and Predication." Wow! Um, in Aristotle's Categories and Metaphysics. Do you have a publisher? I'm hoping it'll be published by the Center for Thomistic Studies. We've wow. had some early conversations about that. Very good. But we'll see how that Very goes. Very good. Dr. Joseph Hatcher, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. This has been good. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S institute.org. Copyright, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>